Good morning. Uh, just before we dive in the Bible together, um, I want to remind us that today is designated Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which means that today's a day that we want to remember, we want to call to mind that human life has sanctity, that is, um, human life is to be valued, human life is to be treated with respect and dignity, all human life, because human life ultimately is created in God's image, every life, uh, every human life uh, is created in God's image. And uh, that's not the topic of the message this morning, so I wanted to just say a word about it before we uh, get into our Bibles together to encourage us to take some time today to think about this, to consider um, our lives and how we're living and whether we're living uh, as we should and if there's more that God would have us do and above all to be praying uh, because our culture is not one that particularly values human life, at least not all human life. So this, I think it was this past week, um, there was the story that broke about the family with the 13 children um, who were being uh, maltreated, uh, mistreated by uh, their parents, and that became the headline for several days, the story, people were talking about it, and, and people were rightly appalled at the way those children's value was being disregarded. They were not being treated, they were not being valued um, the way they should have been. But it struck me that on the same day that that discovery was made about those 13 children, on that same day, some 3,000 children were legally put to death uh, in the wombs of their mothers. And you have here two, two great injustices, two great devaluations of human life. But the one uh, we get very concerned about, it's a news story and everybody's rightly upset, and the other pretty much passes unnoticed. And that's one of the reasons we have a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, is to remind us every human life needs to be treated with, with respect and dignity. And so I, I say that story to just stir us up to think and to pray and, and to ask. You know, it was interesting. One of, the, one of the statements that was made is about the, the family with the 13 kids. Why didn't somebody notice? Why didn't somebody do something? That's a good question. And that's a good question to ask ourselves about every time human life is devalued. Uh, God would have us notice, God would have us care, and God would have us pray. And so maybe you can take some time today and to think, to pray, and is there more God would be stirring you up to do uh, to support, for example, our Options 360 Pregnancy Center and other resources that we might act with compassion and truthfulness uh, helping those who think they have no other alternative but to take a life, um, and above all, to pray. The Bible says we have not because we ask not, so let's ask. Will you join me and let's pray about that uh, right now? Father, you care about every human life. You care about each one of our lives because you've made us in your image. And, and that's true of, of babies in the womb. That's true of senior citizens who are being neglected and abandoned and, and mistreated. Lord, uh, this, this comes to play with uh, 
with issues of racism and in all kinds of ways, Lord, where we fail to value life the way you do. So help us, Lord. Help us be people who have great compassion, great concern, who don't disregard any human life, but care for them all, love them all. And God, will you help us? Uh, we pray that uh, the, the injustice, the disregarding of human life uh, in every form will become as unthinkable to us as what was done to those 13 kids. We pray you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. And we are going to be in chapter 5 today. You know, as a church, particularly with a name like Philida Bible Church, um, it's clear that we want to take the Bible seriously. And one of the ways we do that is by regularly teaching the Bible. We want to be a church that teaches the Bible effectively and well. Uh, but there's more. We actually also want to learn how to read the Bible and to study the Bible for ourselves that that would be something we're all doing. And uh, that's why if you don't have a Bible of your own, we encourage you to take one from the racks in front of you and put your name in it and make it yours. We want everybody to be reading and studying the Bible and, and to do it well, which means we want to get the message that's actually there. Uh, we don't want to twist it. We don't want to distort it. We want to interpret it correctly, which means getting the message, the meaning that God put there, that, that he used the human authors to put there. And um, that's going to involve learning to avoid some common mistakes in Bible interpretation. And one of these mistakes is when we take a Bible truth and then we draw from that conclusions that actually are contrary to what the Bible teaches. So you take a Bible truth and you, you stretch it to an unbiblical conclusion. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. We know that the Bible teaches that God promises to provide for the material needs of his people. Okay, he will provide. That is a biblical truth, and it's a good one. Um, but and this has happened throughout history sometimes, people sometimes take that Bible idea, that truth, and draw the unbiblical conclusion that since God will provide, that means we don't have to work. So we don't have to you know, grow our own food or go out and get a job, somehow earn a living and work. Well, that's somebody reaches that conclusion, they've reached an unbiblical conclusion because the Bible specifically and explicitly teaches us that we should work, we must work, that God provides if we're able. God provides for us through our work. Another example, the Bible teaches that God is a plan and that God works out everything according to his plan, according to his will. That's a biblical truth. And sometimes people then take that truth and draw this conclusion. Well, if God has a plan and God's going to work out his plan according to his will, then I don't have to do anything and I don't have to pray. Prayer 
is in effect useless because God's going to do what God's going to do. So why pray? My praying won't make any difference. That is an unbiblical conclusion because the Bible teaches in many, many places, pray and believe that your prayers do make a difference. So the basic principle is don't let Bible truths lead you to unbiblical conclusions. There are lots of ways we can do that. And today we're coming to a very important example of this in the book of Galatians. Now, the Apostle Paul in this book has just been hammering home the truth, this truth, okay? Law-keeping. And I mean, what I mean by that is trying to obey all of the rules and regulations and rituals that God gave to the people of Israel in his law, trying to keep the law in order to gain God's approval, in order to gain right standing with him. Law-keeping is not how to live with God's approval. That's not how you get it. Okay, It will never gain God's approval for you. Law-keeping or any other form of moralism, which means you know, trying to conform to a moral code in order to experience God's full favor, that's not how God wants us to live. Instead, God makes us right with him. God gives us his approval solely on the basis of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, who died for us, and who comes and indwells us by his spirit when we put our trust in him. That's the only way to gain to experience God's approval. So chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That's law keeping. That's legalism. That's moralism. You're not justified that way. You're not made right with God that way. But only through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. That is a crucial Bible truth. In fact, that truth is at the very center of what we call the gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news that Jesus makes us right with God based on his merit. We're not made right with God based on our merit. Now here's the thing. You can't mix those two ideas. You cannot rely on Jesus to give you God's approval and at the same time rely on yourself and your merit and your moral performance to make you right with God. You can't do it. If you try to mix law-keeping with the gospel, you lose the gospel. It's gone. You've distorted it beyond recognition. Galatians, and really all of the Bible, is crystal clear on this. Okay? So that's the Bible truth. Now, there are conclusions we could draw from this, though, that are not biblical. We could conclude, for example, that since we do not become righteous by obeying the law, by keeping the law, therefore the law is irrelevant. doesn't matter. Or 
since obeying God's commands does not make us right with Him, we don't need to obey. Doesn't matter. Obedience doesn't, God doesn't care. Not true. Not true at all. Jesus said, for example, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Having faith in Jesus, being a believer in Jesus, that does not make the law irrelevant, and it does not make obedience unnecessary. Those are unbiblical conclusions. What we're going to see in Galatians 5 is that obeying God's law the way he wants us to obey it is not only not unnecessary, boy, that doesn't sound like the way to say that. Uh, it's absolutely essential. Okay, is that clear? Obeying God's law the way God wants us to obey his law is absolutely essential. It's not optional. All right, so Galatians 5, beginning at verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And by the yoke of slavery, he's talking about that law-keeping uh, mentality, uh, feeling like you've got to keep the law in order to gain God's approval. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And his point here is that you've got these people who are being told that they need to follow all the rituals of the law and starting with circumcision and, and, and going on and, and that's the way to gain God's approval. And Paul says, if you do that, if you undergo that ritual for that reason, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Um, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if you go through that ritual to gain God's approval, then you're obligated to keep the whole thing. You are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law. There it is. This is the motive. You want to be justified by the law, by law keeping. You have fallen away from grace. You've left the path of grace and you're on the grace of moralism. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly hope, wait in hope of righteousness. That's the right way. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So once again, he's hammering home the truth. We're not justified by law-keeping. Only by God's grace received through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so emphasizing it once again. Now we get to verses 7 through 12. And these are a kind of parenthesis containing a warning to those who were misleading the Galatians, who were telling them they needed to adopt law-keeping in addition to faith in Jesus. Um, and it's a very serious warning because it's a very serious issue. However, for the sake of time, we're going to stick to the main argument, which resumes in verse 13. So that's where I'm going now. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Okay, so he's picking up the topic that he started in verse 1. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's a reflecting back to verse 6. Through love serve one another. For the whole law is, note the word, fulfilled in one word. 
One command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, can you see how this passage contradicts the conclusion that if we are believers in Jesus, how we live, how we behave, doesn't matter because we're saved by faith and we're saved by faith alone. If I got faith, that's all that matters. You see how this passage contradicts that conclusion? Verse 16, this is written to believers in Jesus. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here you got two different ways of living. You know, walk by the Spirit, gratify the desires of the flesh. Now what does Paul say about that? Does he say, hey, take your pick. It doesn't matter. Is that what he says? No. He says, walk by the Spirit. That's the way to live. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. So it does, it, he's not saying it doesn't matter if you obey God's Spirit or not. He's saying it does matter. This passage also contradicts the conclusion that the law is completely irrelevant. You know, that because Jesus has come and he's fulfilled, you know, the sacrifices and he's fulfilled the symbolism of the temple and the, the furnishings of the temple and he's, he's uh, made the, the dietary laws are no longer uh, applicable, that because Jesus did that and we have faith in him, well, we can just tear the Old Testament out of our Bibles and it doesn't matter. No. Verse 14 says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. So notice this, okay? All right. Track with me. Law fulfilling Law-fulfilling is important, even though law-keeping is contrary to the gospel. You say, well, what, is this, what does that mean? What's the difference? Okay, here's the difference. Law-keeping, when I use that expression, I'm talking about this, this perspective, this, this lifestyle of trying to follow all of the rules and regulations and rituals of the law as if Jesus had not come in order to gain God's approval or experience his fullest approval. That's what I mean by law-keeping. Law-fulfilling, on the other hand, that's what you do because you have faith in Jesus. Okay? So law-keeping is opposed to faith in Jesus, Law-fulfilling is what you do because you have faith in Jesus. So, this loving others as we love ourselves, that is not the root of a relationship with God. It is the fruit of a relationship with God. And it's not optional. Fulfilling the law is not optional. So the question we need to explore is, how do you do that? How do you fulfill God's law? And there's two parts to the answer. Part number one. How do you fulfill God's law? By doing what it truly intends. 
By doing what the law truly intends, now that Christ has come in fulfillment of all the prophecies, he's the one to whom the law points, but how then do we fulfill our responsibility? Well, verse 14 says you do it this way. You love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, love occurs three times in our passage. So you got verse 14, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 6 says the only thing that counts is faith working through or working out in love. Verse 13 says through love serve one another. So, Faith working through love, faith working through love, serving one another through love, loving your neighbor as you love yourself, that's what God's law is ultimately all about as far as our responsibility. That's how God intends us to fulfill his law. Now the problem is, we have a tendency to take God's law and to twist it into something else. And instead of seeing it as a gracious gift from God, which instructs us how to live out a loving relationship with Him, in relationship with others, we take it and we turn it into a manual for how to gain God's approval. And when we do that, Here's the problem. We become preoccupied with ourselves and whether we've done enough to be good enough to deserve God's blessing, to earn God's blessing. And instead of being just awestruck with God's glory and grace and majesty, we, are, we become focused on how good or bad we are. And that misses it. Okay, so John Piper's got an illustration of this that I think is very helpful. See if you like it. He says the law was meant to be like a train track. So imagine a section of railroad track, and it's it's leading us in the direction that God wants us to go, relying on him the way a train relies on the locomotive. Relying on the power of the locomotive. So we're like a train on the track, God's law, relying on him, empowered by him, going the direction he wants us to go. However, what people often do is they take that train track and they try to stand it on end and turn it into a ladder that we climb to try to reach heaven, relying on our own strength, our own goodness, our own good deeds, whatever, to get us to God. That's not how it works. That is not how it works. That's law-keeping. That's not law-fulfilling. That shifts the focus away from God's glory and God's provision, and puts the focus on us and our glory. That's not the law's intent, because you know what? That's not good for anybody. Not for the person trying to do it, and not for others as well. So Paul says, no, to fulfill the law, in other words, to fulfill its true intent, 
Love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote right from the book of Leviticus. And Paul expands on it in Romans 13.8. Take a look. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another, or who loves another, has fulfilled the law. There it is. So the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. What's he quoting there? Anybody? Ten Commandments, right? The commandments and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's what the law intends. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. What does that mean? Well, thankfully... Jesus explained it for us. So Matthew 7, verse 12. Here you go. Whatever you wish that others would do to you or do for you, do also to them or for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Look at that. This is another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever you wish that others would do for you, you do for them. So what do you wish others would do for you? Do you wish they'd make you feel welcome? Make you feel wanted? Included? Do you wish that they would truly care about how you're doing? Do you wish that they would treat you with kindness, especially when you're going through a tough time? Do you wish that they would encourage you? They would challenge you when you need it. That they would pray for you. That they would help you succeed. That they would forgive you when you blow it. And above all, that they would tell you the truth about Jesus so that you can know Him. So that you can experience His grace in your life. Because that... That is the ultimate thing that you need. Well then, that's what we're called to do for others. You know, it's interesting. Um, Sometimes people get the idea that, you know, Christianity, you know, by by saying, well, you know, law-keeping is not the issue anymore, some people act like that's kind of a dumbing down a kind of a lowering of responsibility, a lowering of, you know, our standards of behavior, basically making God's law easier. No. By telling us what the law truly intends, Jesus did not make obedience easier. It's not easier. Love your neighbor as yourself, that is extremely demanding. That, is extre- that, that involves all kinds of difficult, inconvenient things. And if we say, well, that's too difficult, that's too inconvenient, I don't have to do that because I'm a believer in Jesus, that's wrong. You absolutely do. You absolutely do. What Jesus does is not make fulfilling God's law easy. He makes it possible. And that brings us to the second answer. Okay, so we fulfill the law by doing what it truly intends. How do we do it? 
by doing it the only way it can be done. Superficial conformity to the law won't cut it. Okay, that's what the religious people, you know, in Jesus' day, that's what they were all into. Superficial conformity. Man, they were so meticulous about, you know, tithing their herbs and everything. And Jesus said, yeah, but your hearts are far from God. You don't really love God and you don't really love people. So superficial conformity is not going to cut it. You know, Jesus said, it's not enough just to avoid adultery. You can't lust. He said, it's not enough just to not kill people. You can't hate. Whoa. How, how are we going to fulfill this law? One way. Only one way. By faith. By relying on Jesus. As it says here, by walking by his Spirit. It's very interesting that Paul tells us that the whole law is fulfilled in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting because that's, that's half of what Jesus said. Jesus, somebody asked him what the greatest commandment was, and he started with the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Then he gets to the love your neighbor as yourself part. So why does Paul leave the first part out? Because he doesn't leave it out. He's not left out loving God. He's been talking about it through the whole book. And what he says here makes it obvious that there's no way to love your neighbor as yourself without loving God and trusting and relying on him. Okay, so let's go back. Consider what he has said previously. Chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's that mean? It means he's got a relationship with God who loves him, and it's Christ in him that empowers him to live. Chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Chapter 4, verse 6. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. What is that? That's loving God. Chapter 4, verse 9. You have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And you get to chapter, here in our passage. Okay, if you look back at verse 5. For through the Spirit, through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, that is in union with Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith. Working through love. Look at the order there. Faith first, then works out through love. Faith in who? Jesus. God. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So put it all together. What's the consistent message? That a living, a living 
loving relationship with God on the basis of being united to Jesus by faith and being indwelt by his spirit, that is foundational to loving your neighbor as yourself. There is no way to fulfill the law. There is no way to love your neighbor as yourself without that. No way. And I'm confident that sounds like an overstatement. I can almost imagine somebody saying, oh, really? You're saying we can't love unless we rely on God? Really? I mean, I can be nice to people without relying on God. Well, yeah, we can do nice things. But we can't actually love people the way God intends that we love people. And servant, did you notice that little word? <laughs> I love how he throws that in there. Serve people. You guys want to be slaves in effect? That's what he's saying? Well, this is the only kind of slavery that counts. Be a slave of God who serves others. You can't love people, you can't serve people the way God wants us to unless you rely on him. Why? The reason is explained in verses 13 through 17. Until Jesus sets us free by the power of his indwelling spirit, we are under the mastery of the flesh, and the flesh has no interest in loving and serving others. Let's unpack this. What is the flesh? Well, it's not your body. That's a common misunderstanding. Okay, sometimes the word flesh means body, but not here. And it's not your physical desires for things like food and drink and sex because God created all those things. Now, the flesh will corrupt those desires, but that's not what the flesh is. The desires in and of themselves are not the flesh. The flesh is Paul's term for the self in rebellion against God. Or, if you want to put it this way, the self-directed self. It is fallen human nature making up its own rules and living by its own rules in either complete indifference to God or blatant rebellion against God. That's the self. And guess what? The self, the flesh, is utterly selfish. And the thing is, you and I, we can be really good at disguising this and making our selfish desires look good. We, we practice this growing up. And we're even good at fooling ourselves that we're not being selfish when we are. It's amazing. But see, deep down, the flesh, the flesh doesn't want what God wants. That's what Paul's saying. The flesh does not want people to love and trust and glorify God. That is, if we're going to love people, that's the thing we have to be concerned about most because that's in their ultimate interest. There's no way for them to be ultimately and lastingly happy without knowing God, loving God, trusting God, glorifying God. And the flesh doesn't want that. So if you are mastered by the flesh, you are literally incapable of loving people the way God wants us to love them. But, 
That was grim. Here's the good news. The good news, Jesus sets us free from the mastery of the flesh. We don't have to do what comes naturally. We don't have to do what comes selfishly. We can walk by his spirit instead. Okay, without God, no chance. With God, we have the ability to walk by the spirit, not carry out the desires of the flesh, and instead love people, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So what does it mean to walk by the spirit? Well, it means to live under his direction, under his mastery. And you know what he will always direct us to do? He will always direct us to live in obedience to what he himself told us. He will always direct us to live our lives in ways that honor Jesus Christ and give Jesus all the focus and glory. The Spirit enables us to love Jesus' commands. Not just to grudgingly fulfill them, but to love them to come to love them, to learn to love them. The Spirit enables us to believe the promises of Jesus. The Spirit enables us to say no to short-term pleasures because we're convinced that in Jesus, God has made us heirs of his kingdom and is going to give us everything we need to be happy forever. So I can say no to this because I've got this, and the Spirit is who enables me to believe that. So if I rely on God's Spirit, just some examples. I'm not setting myself up as an example. I'm talking rhetorically, okay? So if you or me, if we rely on God's Spirit, which means to humbly and consistently plead with Him, to pray for His direction, uh, to help me love His truth, to help me to value Jesus above all other things, if I do that, if I walk by God's Spirit, I don't have to be selfish. Why do I have to be selfish? I don't have to hoard money. I don't have to lay up treasure on earth. Jesus frees me to be generous. And I don't have to hold on to grudges. And I don't have to try to even the score when I get hurt. Because Jesus has freed me to forgive. He's going to take care of that. And I don't have to envy others or gossip about others or try to put them down in order to make myself feel better or look better. Jesus has freed me of that. He's given me all the love, all the worth, all the significance my soul could ever want. And so on. That's just a few examples. As we walk by the Spirit as we rely on him, as we pray for him to, to teach us to love his truth and to value Jesus above all things, then, then the flesh you know, begins to lose its grip. He breaks the mastery. So, sum it up. If we know God, if we love God through faith in Jesus, he empowers us to fulfill his law by serving others in love. 1 John 4.19, notice the order. We love because he first loved us. It's always that way. He loves first. We receive his love by faith, and he then empowers us to love others. When you belong to Jesus by faith, 
obeying God, you know, God's law is not irrelevant, and obeying God is not optional, it's essential, but he will enable us to do it as we rely on him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that in Jesus we are set free to love. And Lord, we just are asking that you would enable us to walk by your spirit, to rely on you very deliberately, very intentionally. And you will teach us what it looks like to love others as we love ourselves. And you will empower us to do it by the truth of your word, by the truth of all that you are and all that you will do for us in Jesus. May that be what motivates all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.